This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now. Hello everyone, this is your host Rakesh Kamal and welcome to Climate Emergency. It's that time of the year when we discuss the climate negotiations. This year the COP27 is being held in Egypt. And to discuss what to expect from these negotiations, I talked to Navroz Dubash, Professor, Center for Policy Research. Hi Navroz, welcome to Climate Emergency. Can you please introduce yourself to the listeners who might not know you? Hi, thank you Rakesh for this opportunity to speak on Climate Emergency. My name is Navroz Dubash. I'm a professor at the Center for Policy Research, a think tank in New Delhi. So in this episode, uh, I want to focus more on the climate negotiations or you know COP27 uh, that is set to happen next month you know, in Egypt. But before that, can you maybe explain a little bit about uh, why these negotiations happen and why it is important for us to understand them? Yes, uh, I, I'll try and do that. The, the, the climate negotiations um, uh, are called COPs because that means Conference of Parties and the, the parties are the member governments. Uh, who are parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is something that was signed back in 1992. And actually, I I was around in this process since 1990 when negotiations started for that uh, convention. And then every year, the convention stipulates that the parties sit down and try and make progress on the objectives of the convention. So that's just the formal explanation of what this COP is. But the really interesting part of it is, you know, what role does it play? Does it do anything in terms of actually changing the situation on the ground? And for many, many years, the objective was to try and negotiate some kind of agreement on what each country would do in terms of reducing their emissions. And then you were supposed to go home and apply that. And that approach became very hard to sustain. And so uh, around the time of Paris... Uh, the, the approach has shifted somewhat. Instead of trying to negotiate what each country will do, they turned it around and said, okay, you figure out what you can do and then you tell us what that is in the form of what are called nationally determined contributions and you come back to the table and we look to see how things have gone after a, after a few years. So whether it's trying to negotiate what each country will do or trying to assess what each country has said it will do, the idea is that every year you sit down and you think and you and you look at what has happened in the past year and you try and move the agenda along. So there are particular aspects that get taken up in different years. So adaptation issues or how do you adapt to climate change. This year, loss and damage is expected to be a big issue. Uh, at Glasgow, one of the things that was agreed to was the rules for carbon uh, trading or carbon markets. So... Basically, these COPs are the place where the international rules of cooperation get set and are enforced year after year. So, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, there is going to be a lot of discussion on loss and damage this year. And uh, it's also because this is the first time uh, the negotiations are happening in Africa. So uh, what is expected to be achieved? Uh, out of this year's negotiations? I mean, will there be a document or will there be more commitment from uh, the developed world or what is expected? You know, these uh, negotiations move at a really glacial space, uh, pace and sometimes it can be very, very uh, uh, frustrating. So loss and damage uh, is this idea 
that uh, countries are already facing losses and damages as a result of climate change and what is the process in a sense to compensate them for that now politically it is hard to use the word compensation because developed countries get very nervous that essentially they're going to be asked to agree to sign a blank check and so they really push back against this idea of language like compensation and reparations but essentially it's what how do you how do you uh, essentially at core loss and damage is an idea that says how do you make good people who have been uh, impacted now in glasgow developing countries and vulnerable countries try to get an agreement on developing a loss and damage financing facility so some kind of pot of money with some rules of how you access that money if you face losses and damages and it didn't uh, fly at glasgow didn't they didn't succeed in that so the agenda is back on the table and as you said this is a cop that is taking place in a, a developing country in africa uh, it's also interesting that one of the biggest negotiating blocks is the group of 77 and plus china that is being chaired by pakistan which is of course a country that has suffered massive widespread uh, damage this year from flooding likely climate induced flooding um so all of these things are going to increase the pressure on the developed world to try and uh, uh uh make some at least some gestures uh towards loss and damage now given as i said the glacial pace of this what we will probably see happening or what the best one can assume will happen is an agreement to establish some sort of facility around loss and damage which in then in subsequent cops the exact rules for that will be negotiated and bargained over um but i think it would be unrealistic to expect creation of such a body providing of funds to it and have it up and running so that countries can actually access funds in in the period of you know the next few months or the next year or two i think that will be unrealistic but even getting that agreement would be a good first step okay that that's interesting if we have it i think that would be you know a success for the developing world uh, to have some outcome so other than uh, loss and damage what are the other priorities that are there in this cop you know this is a this is a and a very intriguing cop because um as you said as we said already it's taking place in the developing world it's taking place in the context of a lot of uh uh climate impacts around the world but it's also taking place at a time when the developed world is quite distracted europe in particular is facing this uh situation of military engagement between ukraine and 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 russia uh they are facing an energy security crisis so normally the europeans push very hard uh for uh, countries to take more steps on mitigation uh and so on and so forth and they are likely to be much more distracted this year plus they are speaking from a position of relative weakness because many european countries are also uh, uh in light of their energy security problems the fact that they have a gas shortage uh because they used to buy a lot of their gas from russia they are subsidizing consumption of gas for their population some some european countries and so um the dynamic is going to be quite different where many developing countries are actually arguably doing more at the moment so the trend is in the right direction in in europe the us is kind of a mixed story because they have managed to finally pass legislation that is quite significant on climate change even though it's called something very different it's called the inflation reduction act but it has a lot of measures to 
stimulate green uh, uh, investment so in a sense it's a it's an it's an interesting moment and it'll be curious to see how that political dynamic plays out at this cop in terms of the concrete issues as you say the priority is is as we've discussed already the priority is is loss and damage and then there are a few other issues that are uh, on which discussion may not be concluded in this round but it's very important to make progress and that is the so called global goal on adaptation to actually announce a goal on adaptation analogous to what we have for mitigation um and to take forward the financing agenda so will there be money on the table for developing countries trying to move to a low carbon uh, economy and here the thing that is talked about the most is something that was announced at glasgow which is the just energy transition uh, uh, partnership that south africa announced with a, a, a series of developed countries to try and fund their transition away from coal and um people assume that that would lead to many more of these kinds of partnerships including with india so one of the things people are watching for is is that is that promise going to uh, uh, going to unfold so these are the sorts of things that i think uh, we should be watching for you know it, it's interesting that you say uh, you have to talk about the global adaptation goal because i mean from mitigation i can understand you know you have uh, for climate mitigation you can say we will reduce this much of amount of emissions but for adaptation every country has its own needs and its own vulnerabilities right uh, how would the whole world come together and put uh, steps on you know adaptation what you know uh, maybe uh, like for example there might be uh, sea erosion that's happening for some countries Uh, but for some desertion might be a more bigger priority so how would you know all these countries come together and put forward a target for adaptation i mean last year it was easier maybe you know everyone said net zero uh, would be something that we are uh, you know uh, looking for we have we want to reduce emissions everyone made statements right i think india said 2070 if i'm not wrong every country said 2050 2040 you know they, they gave their commitment so easier but for adaptation what are the kinds of targets that can come into uh, picture yeah it's an excellent question and i and i think the challenge has always been that mitigation because it's focused on carbon dioxide and a few other greenhouse gases it's much more it's more straightforward to be precise about what one is saying uh you can measure you know how you reducing emissions or are you limiting your emissions beyond what they would otherwise be and so on i think the idea behind the goal global goal on adaptation is to say okay even if we can't be as precise it's important to give it uh um an equivalent importance to mitigation because i think we are increasingly coming to the realization that we are not going to limit warming to the point where we can avoid having to adapt there will be some adaptation involved at the same time we can't adapt uh to uh levels of warming that go far beyond 2 two, two and a half that it will become very hard to adapt to that because the effects could be so catastrophic so we have to both mitigate and adapt we have no choice but to do both mitigation the conversation as you said is more advanced or more clear now increasingly around net zero targets what is the analogous conversation that we need to have on the adaptation front so it may not be so much about you know focusing just on particular things like sea level rise or coastal defenses or or uh, storm resilience to uh, violent weather events but it might be things like 
you know, building adaptive capacity, uh, mainstreaming resilience uh, within decision-making in countries, uh, reducing vulnerability to climate change. But all of these things, it is true, really very closely interface with development agendas. Um, so, but, 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 so, so, so the kinds of choices one makes about how you develop also bring about adaptation implications. So, for example, things like Manrega, uh, the National, the, the Mahatma Gandhi Rural Employment Guarantee Act, is in a sense also something that increases the resilience of Indian society. So, there is a climate aspect uh, uh, to it. Uh, choices about how we, uh, where we locate our infrastructure, whether we locate it in vulnerable areas uh, in coastal zones. These are infrastructure choices that are also adaptation uh, and resilience uh, choices. But I think the idea that the reason to have a global goal on adaptation is to resist the idea that this is just something that every country has to deal with at home. There are things that uh, collective global action can do to make it more possible to uh, uh, adapt and to be more resilient, whether that's in the form of finance, whether that's in the form of capacity building, whether that's in the form of uh, uh, scientific information for downscaled uh, uh, local scale climate impacts. There are many things that could happen at a global collaborative level for adaptation also. So I think the idea of a global goal and working towards shaping that, even though it's not so clear, uh, is not maybe as straightforward as mitigation. I think it's on the agenda for that reason to say, yes, we also need global cooperation around adaptation. India emits a lot and also at the same time is highly vulnerable to climate change. So in this context, I mean, for this negotiations, uh, what is India's stand on loss and damage and uh, has it changed over time? Do you think it will change over time? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I don't have a very good answer uh, for you to be, uh, uh, to be honest. As you are aware, India has uh, uh, led an international effort around uh, the CDRI, the Coalition for Disaster Resilient Infrastructure. Um, and so that is one kind of approach that we have taken, not to loss and damage per se, but to uh, this idea of how do you address, uh, uh, address disasters and you do it sort of upfront. When it comes to loss and damage per se, India is um, uh, clearly one of the more vulnerable countries. And I think in my personal view, and this is now my personal view, we should be really supporting other South Asian vulnerable countries, uh, you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, 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 these countries in particular, I think are going to be very vocal. Bangladesh has historically been very vocal. Pakistan this year, because of its floods, will certainly be very vocal. Um, I think there's a real moment to have kind of a South Asian solidarity around this issue of, of loss and damage. But as you say, India, I think, is both a vulnerable country and emits quite a lot. So it's a bit nervous about exposing itself to any future demands for uh, compensation uh, that, might, that might be made on India uh, as well. So I think within the government, um, th this is an active debate uh, and I'm not quite sure how it will how play out. I mean, other than the government, uh, we're also seeing a lot of interest in carbon markets or corporate social responsibility in climate change. A uh, lot of companies are coming out with uh, ESG, right, environment, social and uh, governance uh, documents and to show that they are also uh, interested in it. But at the same time, you know, uh, it feels like greenwashing to me when uh, 
uh, one of the largest plastic bottle manufacturing, in fact, Coca-Cola, uh, is sponsoring this year's COP. And uh, what do you think about this? Uh, you know, sometimes I find it ironical, but uh, what are your uh, what's your opinion on this? Yeah, look, you know, these uh, it, it is ironic, right? I mean, it is a company that is that produces an awful lot of plastic waste, but you know, that doesn't stop there, right? I, I think the this whole COP process is riven with these kinds of contradictions. You know, they typically uh, happen in quite glitzy conference arenas, uh, not not always, but quite often. People are flying around the world with an enormous carpet footprint uh, to get there. Often, and this is true in Egypt also, the hotel prices skyrocket. People are paying huge amounts of money to be there. It's not clear that everybody who's there um, is adding that much value by their presence. And I certainly ask myself that question. In fact, I don't go most of the time. This is the first time I'm going to a COP since the Glasgow, I'm sorry, since the Paris COP of 2015. I haven't been for seven years. And my own view, so let me let me convert this question uh, into a slightly different question. So so yes, on your question, is this is does this seem uh, uh, a little peculiar? Yes, yes, it does. And I think that there is a phenomenon more generally of there's a real risk of greenwashing more generally. So the more we ramp up the rhetoric and more we ramp up the political pressure, um, the more I think that uh, uh, those on whom the pressure is ramped up uh, try and use escape valves. And sometimes I feel even net zero targets are a little bit like that. The fact that you have a net zero target means that not you, you, you don't necessarily have to limit your emissions. You can also offset them by buying carbon credits. And there's a lot of doubt about the quality of these carbon credits. And frankly, if everybody were to just try and buy carbon credits, well, at the end of the day, some people have to actually reduce their emissions. Not everybody's going to be able to do this by just buying uh, credits. So there have been recently studies that a lot of corporate net zero targets are not very robust. They're not very well thought through. They're not terribly believable. And that's perhaps true of some countries' net zero targets also. They've been criticized as not being very clear about how much they're going to reduce at home versus buying offsets, uh, whether or not they're going to start uh, right away or whether they're going to push off the hard decisions. So there is, I think, a fair bit of uh, a fair bit of greenwashing. But let me turn this into another question. In my view, the COPs are useful in a limited way. The COPs are useful because they're now big centers of networking. A lot of people sort of meet there and a lot of creative ideas uh, emerge out of out of cops but this and and they're also useful because they set the rules uh, for example around carbon markets to try and make them more credible provide political opportunities for things like loss and damage but in my view the center of gravity now of climate action has to be inside individual countries each of us in our own countries has to figure out how do we make the politics work around both mitigation and adaptation and I think in India, for example, the story is going to be increasingly about how do we create jobs through green industrialization? How do we make ourselves more energy secure by shifting to renewable energy and a focus on solar power rather than imported oil uh, or, uh, or relatively dirty coal uh, that we have? How do we over time transition away from uh, regions on in, of India being heavily dependent on coal for jobs? Because that is an invariable transition. Uh, um, I think it's 
I think it's disruptive and we have to be cautious about it. But over a few decades, we have to make that transition. So we should start thinking about it now, not necessarily making a lot of pledges and promises, but at least thinking about it. Um, these are the kinds of shifts and conversations we have to have. Uh, how do we how do we make sure that our financing and budgeting process takes into account climate change so we don't lock ourselves into vulnerable patterns of, of growth? How do we make sure our cities uh, are built around public transport rather than around private vehicles, which is good both from a climate point of view, but also good from a congestion uh, point of view. So th this is the center of gravity. The center of gravity is what do each of us think we can achieve in our own countries and how can we do so collectively. And then the international process is, in a sense, just a supportive process, you know, by putting on the table nationally determined contributions, by having them reviewed through this global stock take process, uh, which just happens every five years. These are kinds of nudges uh, to try and move the process along. But the center of gravity, I think, increasingly has to be at the domestic level. I might sound very pessimistic for asking this question. I feel a high level of optimism that you need when you are, you know, following COPs, when you are trying to understand the global negotiations that are happening. I mean, see, just just this year, one war in Russia and you can could change the whole discussion that is happening around climate change negotiations. This level of optimism towards this discussion, like you said, you know, that goes on at glacial speed, like very, very, very slowly. How do we make sure that some outcome out comes out of this uh, faster? Because right now we are living in a world that we need urgent decisions uh, because we are in a state of climate emergency. Um, how do we make sure that our own, uh, like you said, you know, uh, politicians in our countries do that? You know, in terms of the in terms of the the pessimism and the and, and, and the optimism, you know, I've been in and around this conversation since 1990, um, and I've managed to retain some degree of optimism. Um, and and the reason for optimism is this. I think in many countries, we are now finding a way of telling the story that shows how a country can both develop and decarbonize. So, you know, over the last decade, the cost of renewable energy has come down 80%. The cost of battery storage has come down 80%. A country like India needs energy to develop, definitely. But increasingly, the cheapest form of that energy is solar. So that provides a pathway forward. So I don't think that the language of saying we have to address climate change as an existential crisis and therefore we have to forego development. That's not a viable language. Nobody's going to do that because the West didn't do that. The West went ahead and developed with as much fossil fuels as it, as it needed. Right. So why are we going to give up on that? But if we can find, if the developing world, India, Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, can find ways of developing in ways that also decarbonize, then I think that's very productive. And I think that the West is uh, politically, the tide is turning enough that some powerful actors, particularly financial actors, are beginning to uh, take this on board as a high-level objective. So it's not just ESG funding. I think mainstream funding is beginning to move into the space. Are there setbacks? Of course. And as you said, the Russia-Ukraine situation is a huge setback. But again, in that is the opportunity, if the politicians are wise enough, to drive faster adoption of energy efficiency technologies. 
Um, so the kinds of things that President Biden and uh, the European leaders should be saying is, look, you know, this winter wear another sweater, turn down the thermostat, uh, and and invest in insulation rather than providing subsidies for uh, heating gas. But that's a that's a it's a politically brave person, a, a politician who says that, and and so far they've not been that brave. But I think that's where public mobilization and public pressure, you know, the voice of young people becomes really important to say, look, you know, we have to go down that road where we try and squeeze a, a low carbon transition out of these sorts of uh, shocks rather than rather than uh, allowing this to become a, an excuse for stepping back. That's a very positive note to end the conversation. Thank you very much, Nervous. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now 